This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Revolution Radio. Making smarter financial decisions with your host, Rob Delson, former Fox News host and anchor at Roundtable Media with his team of market masters, Mark Lepresti, Managing Director of Mineta Advisory Partners, co-founder of Battlefin, leading data platform, and a former institutional equities trader at Lehman Brothers. Alex Mascioli, founder of Trade the Chain, former head of institutional prime brokerage at Bquant. John Nigerian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, former co-host of Halftime Report on CNBC, and co-founder of Option Monster and Trade Monster. Daily data insights and ticker updates direct from three of the world's top TradFi legal and crypto experts on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain every Monday and Friday on all your favorite platforms. Let's get started. All right, welcome, B3 Nation. This is Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter Spaces. Tuesday, Thursday, weekend edition on Sunday, 5.30 Eastern Time at Get Rev Radio. Please follow us. Follow all our speakers. Tweet out the space. We are about to get rocking and rolling. It's an old phrase. With uh, with our Thursday show, we've got Alex Massioli. We've got Marco Presti filling in. For John Nigerian, it is his amazing brother, Pete Nigerian. And we've got a very special guest, Tom Lee from Funstrap, who defended Bullet Talk once the whole time. So you are going to want to listen in to hear why he thinks we are actually not in a recession, but in an expansion, folks. Um, it's going to be a great show. We're going to be talking all things from threads on Facebook to the ADP jobs numbers to the, to the CEO of BlackRock saying crypto could Bitcoin can revolutionize finance. Lots to talk about, but first let's let's give a shout out to Verajet. Mark Lepresti. Verajet's offering a, someone a chance to jump on a private jet. Yeah, that's right, Rob. And of course, is always a huge welcome to our loyal B three Nation. And today's episode is sponsored by Verajet. This is a company that regular listeners will recognize. It's one that Dr. J, John Nigerian, and I have been involved with for almost a year now as investors and advisors. These guys are revolutionizing private aviation by providing the only solution for truly low-cost, short-haul private aviation. That means they go... Those you know one to two hour uh, routes, uh, although we do take it a lot longer than that sometimes to go farther uh, distances. Uh, these guys use exclusively the Cirrus SF50 Vision Jet, which uh, for the aviation buffs in the audience they'll recognize that name and perhaps even that particular aircraft. It is arguably the safest and most technologically advanced plane in the sky. It is a jet, single jet. And it has a parachute, not for the passengers, but for the plane itself. And every time that this safety feature, this very unique safety feature has been deployed, everyone on board has walked away. It's an incredible plane. It's an incredible company. We're really happy to be associated with it and affiliated with it. And today, we're really excited to announce to our B3 listeners 
that we have launched a sweepstakes that will enable winners to have a chance to ride on one of these SF-50 Vision Jets with Verajet absolutely free. And you can do so by going to a tweet that is, or excuse me, a link that's going to be pinned by our producers in a moment where you'll have to share your worst aviation travel experiences, your worst travel experience, one that a lot of people, I'm sure, after this past 4th of July, have plenty of terrible travel experiences to share. We're going to be talking about that a little bit later on in the show. So, Producer Patrick, please pin that form so listeners can join the sweepstakes. Verajet is offering win a free ride in a private plane. You don't get that too often. And that's just for our B3. That's amazing. Hey, I wish I could be in this competition because I've had so many bad travel experiences the last week. But we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about travel in this show. Um, but everybody out there, take advantage, man. Jump in. Everybody's got a travel story. Maybe yours is the one that wins it. Get on, get on a Verajet. Hey, let's kick this show off. Um, uh, Tom Lee, thanks for being with us. Hang on for just a couple minutes. We do the quick overviews of the markets, the crypto and the TradFi markets. I'll, I'll bring you into the end of that. And then we're going to have you top, top, top of our, our TradFi segment to talk about what you're doing. And Pete Nigerian, thanks for pinch hitting for your, for your brother, John. Um, you guys both bring awesome perspectives. Mark, let's start with you with a TradFi overview. I know you're dying to talk about jobs numbers what, what, and, and hospitality. What's going on? Well, Rob, the market as expected today, not liking very much at all the absolute blowout report from ADP. Almost doubled what the street was expecting in terms of new jobs. That sounds like good news, but we're still in a good news is bad news environment. As the feckless Fed continues its fight against inflation, the Dow Jones shedding 366 points, the S&P shedding 35 and shy of a quarter. The NASDAQ down 112. Pretty grim day. And this was all on fears that the Fed will have to continue. I wonder where we've heard that before. That the Fed will have to continue raising rates as it tries to get inflation in check. And, you know, what was really interesting to me um, and I'm going to sort of stick with macro here and let Pete get into individual stocks, our fantastic futures segment, our macro minute. Uh, but what was really interesting to me is where the strength in these job numbers came from, because that's an indication to me of where we have these stubbornly inflationary components of the economy, leisure and hospitality leading the way. They were responsible for 232,000 of those new jobs that were reported for this month. With 497,000 total, 232,000 is a huge, huge component to it. And that is that non-core services section or sector, excuse me, that Chairman Powell specifically complained about in his comments and his responses during the press conference around the last uh, rate announcement of that famous pause. These are consumer-facing service industries, discretionary, benefiting from discretionary income. I'm still surprised to see that there's actually money going in that direction, given where we are with credit, given where we are with savings, given where we are with wage stagflation, although we may have turned a corner on that as well. So really, really interesting. One bright spot or spot that I think we have to be happy about no matter what 
is the fact that companies with less than 50 employees were responsible for more than half of the growth, adding almost 300,000 uh, positions, 300,000 new jobs. That is absolutely fantastic news for the startup economy. It's fantastic news for the small business economy. And as our listeners know, that is a segment that I will always be on the sidelines cheering for. And um, yeah, and look, that all bodes uh, well for the job market. I think it bodes poorly for the stock market because of what Jay Powell will have to do. But I think Tom Lee may have a different... He may, may, Mark. He (laughs) just may. We're going to just keep teasing this, Tom, because you are the, 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 the bull of the bulls calling this. But everybody listening, Tom Lee called it right. He called it right six months ago. He's doubling down. We're going to get to that in a few minutes. And and his take on on where the S and P is going and why we are he's he's upping his his he's upping his numbers. Um, but first, Pete, can you just jump in? Give us a quick look, both just a kind of a macro, just a macro minute, and then a couple um, fantastic futures uh, takes that you have. Sure, absolutely. And, and you know, Tom Lee's been a good, good friend for a long time, and I, I'll never forget Tom catching a lot of crap early on with some of these calls, and he's been right and right and right. So <laughs> uh, I'll always have his back, and he's, he's done an amazing job. Um, from a macro side, you know, the, Mark was exactly right. Well, that's exactly what we've been seeing. Those numbers were huge, which gave the Fed that much more courage to be able to say, if you want to call it courage, to, to say, you know what? Yeah, we're going to continue this rate hikes. And with that, you know, we start start to see a lot more going into that. Now it's 95%. The CME gives that Fed watch uh, tool that they've got out there, 95% chance that they're going to have a rate hike. So in this July meeting. So that's something that definitely sticks out. That's on the macro side. Outside of that, I can tell you, there's a lot of stocks that have had incredible moves to the upside just in a very short period of time, Upstart being one of them. Now, it gave back a little bit today, but I would keep an eye on this name. It's up threefold since May from May to through June. A really nice run to the upside. Obviously, AI lending platform is the basis of what people are looking at there. And Affirm, another one of these names, it's been under pressure. It got even more pressure today. Piper downgraded them, has a price target of about 11, I think, right now. So when I when I look across things, there are some interesting things going on for sure in the world. But I'm looking at Genius Sports. If you want to look for something that's making a move to the upside, these guys just did a deal. My old world of the Net National Football League, they actually just iced a deal that gets them all the way out to 2027-23. That's going to be pretty impressive, I think, uh, for a long period of time. Stock had a great reaction and a terrible tape. And then, of course, you know, vinyl science type companies, they really don't care much about what's going on in the macro. When things go well, they go really well. We had Pfizer today jumping in on Caribou Biosciences and some of the work that they're doing together potentially in the future. A big $25 million move for for Caribou, that gave them a 60% shot to the upside. So when we see stuff like that moving around, it's pretty impressive. And I'll tell you this, even Upstart today, despite the fact that it was down, it was down more than 10 or 11%. It actually kind of rallied back towards the end of the day, much like we'd seen out of Meta as well, where Meta had a big run to the upside, 52-week highs again, and then pulled back just a little bit. But there are some stocks out there that certainly are not feeling the pressure quite to the same degree as some of the others. And that's why you're seeing that big move from the Dow to the downside. Hey, um, um, Pete, quick question about Genius Sports, right? Yeah. So they're big in the tech side. 
Do you see mm-hmm. them probably being one of the early players moving? I know DraftKings is, but moving in mm-hmm. toward NFTs and kind of leaning in a little to the Web3 space with sports betting and, and yeah. sports stuff. 100%. I would agree with that. Yes, they, they they already have themselves positioned very well in all those different categories. You know, the next gen stats that they've got out there. They've got a lot of different things going into the betting side of things, as well as, you know, uh, not just the, the services side, but they really are fulfilling just about everything. And I think that's why the NFL is so intrigued by what they're doing. Let's be honest, this is not a monstrous company by any stretch, but they've done a really, really great job and the NFL's rewarding them with this partnership that's extending out. So certainly they're impressed. And when the NFL is impressed with anything, you'll want to be a part of that because it is it is by far the biggest and baddest of all the sports out there is the NFL. And the, the, their numbers prove it every single year. It's incredible what they continue to build upon and get even better. And I think that there's a lot of the other sports leagues, they've got to figure this thing out because they're not seeing the same types of gains that we're seeing in the NFL right now. And I think a lot of that has to do with what's going on in the front office, particularly at the very top in every one of the other sports. Great insight. Move over, Madden. Or Madden's going Web three. Madden's going Web three, but then it goes the way, right? You're laughing, but you know I'm right. Um, Pete, um, thanks for that. Stick around for the TradFi segment with us. Um, we're going to talk about some stuff. Stay as long as you can. I know if you can't stay the whole hour, totally understand. You are listening to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter Spaces. Follow us at Get Rev Radio. Please tweet out the space if you like what you're hearing. If you don't like what you're hearing, then you're probably going to leave anyway. But don't leave. Stick around. Stick around for Beyond B3, which we do after this show, where you guys, the audience, get in on the convo. And please follow all of our great speakers. Follow Pete. You know, obviously follow Mark and Alex. And and definitely follow Tom Lee. We're going to get to Tom in a minute. Let's just quick do. Um, we've got Nick Mancini the from the research desk at Trade the Chain. Nick, give us a cri- quick crypto. I can barely say it. A quick crypto update. And then we'll get to crypto co- topics later on in the show. But what's the quick take? Yeah, so the quick crypto updates that we are seeing right now, uh, we're at a $1.18 trillion total market cap. We're down about 1% in the past 24 hours. And if anyone's seen the recent volatility, um, you know, I think we we understand why. Uh, Bitcoin daily sentiment sitting around a 67 out of 100 level. So sitting in the bullish territory after a, a very topsy-turvy 24 hours. Ethereum sitting at 63 out of 100 as well. So also in the bull category. Uh, one thing of major note is tweet volume is up 50% compared to its 30-day average. 152,000 tweets about cryptocurrencies today, which we typically uh, you know, understand to be you know, heightened interest in the market. Um, as it pertains to Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, Bitcoin's trading volume is about 20.4 billion up about 30 percent from its 30-day average again you know very related to recent volatility a lot of turnover in the market and then ethereum's uh trading volume is 8.37 billion up 20 percent versus its 30-day average in the market so sentiment is positive right now but crypto is at recent lows with uh, some interesting news on the horizon that we'll discuss later um so you know that is the full update and uh we're, we're just hanging around the recent lows right now hoping for a rise into the weekend awesome thanks for that all right guys you can tell i'm just excited to get tom lee into this conversation so we're going to welcome in tom lee he is one of the most well-known talented analysts out there 
um, a managing partner at Fundstrat, a global advisors. Tom, good to have you. Let's just set this up real quick. I know Pete and Mark have a lot of questions for you. I'm going to toss it out with a first one, but everybody, B3 Nation, back in December, Tom called. Tom said the S&P would jump more than 20%, the 4.750, a price target, which is way higher than Wall Street's forecast. And he doubled down on that in March, saying stocks were going to keep going up despite inflation, the dovish Fed, all kinds of things were going to make that the S&P was going to rally. And he's actually came out a couple of weeks ago. And, and Tom, you said, we're not actually heading for a recession. We're, we're moving into an expansion. And now you've doubled down on your numbers. So first, easy toss out question for our audience is, where do you see the S&P going and why are you so confident? And by the way, Pete said it, you've been right over and over and over again. Uh, yeah, thanks, guys. And uh, it's great to be on. I really like the format here because it's a good chance for us to have a, a good discussion informed so thanks for having me uh and i love you guys um i i i would say our confidence in equities um achieving you know 4825 is an all-time high is one part uh, a catch-up trade because you know the rest of the world is already at all-time highs you know the Nikkei is at a, a high that you haven't seen for 40 years and eight out of ten european countries are within 3% of all-time highs. So the S&P still about 10% below its all-time high to me is a catch-up trade, especially because we actually have the best economy. I mean, Jamie Dimon mentioned it yesterday, but the key to us is that I think there's been incredible corporate resilience that businesses last year battened down the hatches because they thought a recession was coming. They cut spending. They were really cautious about hiring. Uh, they held on to people. And now that we've con gone through these sort of headwinds, we're starting to emerge from that earnings recession. Um, you know, next quarter, Q2 is coming up. Excluding energy, earnings are positive year over year. It's first time since the end of 2021. And if you look at like earnings revisions, the negative revisions is the lowest since the second quarter of last year. So you you don't have like companies guiding down you actually have companies sort of holding guidance. And why do I think this is all happening? I think inflation is kind of falling pretty rapidly. I mean, uh, next month, June CPI, that comes out on July 12th. The headline number could have be like 3%. So we, we've gone from 9% inflation to 3% in a year. And I think it's going to make the Fed's job a lot easier now to say, look, We've already delivered a, a huge amount of hikes. We might do two more, but that's 50 basis points on top of five. That's not going to kill the patient, but it is going to give us a little bit of a cushion in case inflation tries to flare itself up. I mean, that's an 1982 playbook. So I guess that's why. So let me ask you this real quick, um, Tom. We talk a lot on this show about what the Fed's doing. You know, Mark loves calling the feckless Fed because they are. Do you look at this and go, you're, you're looking at a lot of data making this analysis, but is your take that it almost doesn't matter what the Fed does right now? The market's already factoring that in. I mean, you're, po you're being optimistic despite the fact that there's a lot of conditions that should, should suggest negativity. And a lot of people are like, no, we're heading for a recession. Is your take kind of like it, this is happening no matter what, or could the Fed derail this? Uh, well, the Fed could derail it because, you know, the Fed is still the most powerful entity in the world. But 
I, I think in I think the listeners have to appreciate the Fed actually has a, a communication as their primary uh, policy tool, and they've got to communicate their policy to the government, to the public, to the bond market, and to this, and really to a lesser extent the stock market. The stock market's sort of the last thing on their mind, and as long as inflation and people look at year over year, as long as it was like a four. The Fed couldn't tell you, like, we'll slow down in a few months because everyone would be like, well, it's still four. How could you even slow it down? But we're getting to the point now where you might have two months now, June and July, where CPI could be like three year over year. And that's not that far from a 2% target. And, you know, wage growth is already slowing. I mean, we'll find out tomorrow. That's the big number is the average hourly earnings. But you know, they, they need to get that to three. That's the long-term average. It's at four, two right now. They're not too far from targets and that can allow them to breathe. This is sort of what happened in 82. I mean, I think, I know I, I hear everyone say like they, they're studying the Fed and they're looking at traditional business cycles. The only real inflation cycle the Fed was fighting in a sustained way like this was 82. They let up on that inflation war in October publicly for the first time they thought about saying, well, we might stop, we might consider ending the war on inflation. But that was in October. The stock market bottomed in August, two months before the Fed even publicly considered ending the inflation war. That kind of happened uh, last week. I don't know if you guys remember, but Powell was at the ECB summit. Sarah Eisen asked him, well, you know, the stock market's going up. You know, they're fighting the Fed. And, and Powell last year would have killed it, just absolutely crushed it by saying, very hawkish things. He made a joke about it this time. I, I think the Fed isn't as bothered by what the equity markets are doing, especially because the rest of the world stock markets at almost all are all almost all at all time highs. That is so interesting, Mark Lepresti. I know you are dying to jump into this conversation. Go for it. Yeah, well, thank you, Rob and and Tom. Always wonderful to have you. Um, thank you very much. You're one of our favorite special guests. At least that's what our audience tells us. Um, and always fantastic insights. So thank you for joining. Uh, and I know we only have you for a short time before you go on to your next uh, commitment. I guess I'm sort of less concerned about the market. I, I'm I'm less concerned about um, the Fed, and I'm more concerned about sort of the underlying vital signs of what powers great earnings, what powers, you know, a, a, a recovery, or maybe it's a rolling recovery, as another uh, famous economist uh, suggested this morning. And that's around the consumer. And I know it's something we talk about a lot on the show, but I think we talk about it a lot with good reason. And, you know, we're over a trillion dollars of all-time high in credit card debt. We're seeing greater and greater provision for charge-offs from credit card companies, expecting more and more defaults. We're, we've seen, you know, an inflation-adjusted, you know, four-decade low of savings rates. We had J.P. Morgan two weeks ago coming out saying that excess savings, to the extent that they even still exist, would be completely depleted by October. It seems that the spending, the discretionary spending on the services side, shows no signs of letting up to the point that it actually represented the largest component of job growth as um, reported from those ADP numbers this morning. I just don't understand, like, doesn't the party have to stop at some point in time? 
when it comes to this spending that's powering, doesn't demand destruction have to set in and start being reflected in earnings? I, I, I got the sense that we could be looking at a very, very um, uh, bad, frankly speaking, uh, fourth quarter and, and holiday season when the, when the American consumer just runs out of cash and runs out of credit. It, does that not concern you as it relates to where you see with your new S&P target for the end of the year? Well, just, that's a, a lot there to cover, but you know, f- keep in mind, the Fed doesn't even look at the ADP report. You know, it's uh, when I was at J.P. Morgan, they called it the random number generator report. I mean, it. I know it's supposed to be based off payrolls, but they just don't do seasonal adjustments, right? So, who knows how many jobs really got added? Um, and so we'll find out tomorrow. But you know, in terms of uh, the consumer. I think people are forgetting when you're when people are earning five percent on Fed funds because the Fed is putting rates here, just on money markets that's two hundred fifty billion dollars a year in income. Uh, you know that's like close to one percent GDP growth, right? Just from cash interest on your money market balances, and that's not on top of the pension income that's now being adjusted by CPI because that's how government defined benefits work. So I I don't think the consumer's getting tapped out. But you know, the one context I would give people is there's a reason they called it the Roaring Twenties after the Spanish flu, because the general mood of the consumer was like a celebration of life. And I I guess that might explain why the consumer has stayed optimistic. And um you know uh I mean, that's a possibility. I'm not saying that's the reason, but, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be the fun. The, the thing that I think is tripping people up is what conviction we would be rolling into a recession this year. And every one of our clients at the start of this year that was bearish said, there's no way S&P earnings is going to be 180, inverted yield curve. Look at the PMIs of Fed. This is all going to collapse. And... Now things haven't. So we're getting to a point where that view is being really challenged. And it's, and I think a lot of people are saying, well, that means a recession is eventually going to happen. And they'll be right because, you know, a recession probability is 20% in any year. But we're already halfway through the year. So I don't, you know, I don't know if there's really a probability of a recession in the second half. Because remember, a recession is a sudden unexpected change in business conditions. So you'd actually need a commodity spike here or some like our stock market crash. Those are the things that could trigger recession, but we've already had shocks. That's what I just think we have to be keep in mind. And Tom, let me ask you, we try to share with our listeners, you know, insights on what they can take away to do. You're such a great analyst. And you know, a lot of our B3 nation is out there, you know, looking at your stuff, looking at other people's stuff, looking at Mark's stuff looking at what we offer them but is there like a high level tip when you you could give share with people about like you know sort of how you approach looking and analyzing the markets that that the average retail person could actually utilize and be a better trader better investor i know it's a broad question but yeah well i think that yeah if so i i've been following markets 30 years and i've always been surprised that the market never does what i expect it to do 
And I think most of your listeners feel that way too. Like they'll be so certain that if this happens, then this is what the stock should do. And what I learned as a sell side analyst for 30 years is that you have to kind of understand where the majority of people's views are set. Because that's, so like, don't think about the market from what you think it should do. Think about it, what most people are expecting it to do. And then ask yourself, is the surprise going to be better or worse? That's really what then gets priced into the stock. I mean, this year is a great example. At the start of this year, everyone said there'd be a recession. So we know people were expecting the cadence, a cascade of bad news, and therefore the stock market should fall. Whereas we kept saying that if inflation was falling faster than expected, that would be a surprise. That was the surprise delivered, and the markets have really levitated. So I don't know. That's one tip. I guess the second is I'd always look at the bond market. The bond market gives you a lot of signals about what the stock market should do. Those are two great, great insights. I love that first one. You're listening to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Twitter Spaces. It's our Tuesday, Thursday, and a Sunday edition at 530 Eastern Time. Follow us at Get Rev Radio. Tweet this space out. Um, follow Tom. Follow all, all of our speakers. Um, and please stick around for the Beyond B3 show, which we do afterward. Mark, I'm sure you've got another question for Tom. Tom, that was a great insight, though. I love that about kind of looking at what not, you know, look at what are people going to be surprised or disappointed based on what we think is going to happen and base it off that. That is a really great insight. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I always feel like people are shouting at the market, you know, instead we should Tom, listen to what the market's telling us. Don't, but I mean, don't you think that that the C-suite though, in in, in the major companies, have figured that out? Like, I, I kind of felt like into Q4 and Q1 um, earnings season most recently that expectations had already been set so low, as evidenced by the revisions, the estimate revisions that we saw, as well as just sort of a very negative tone in terms of you know uh, forward-looking guidance that it, they almost they almost had to sort of set themselves up for success in 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 meeting or beating expectations that were already you know rather uh downtrodden um because of the lessons that we learned from the prior uh, several quarters and I, I guess the the other question or questions i would have for you we we hear a lot um on this show and others of concerns around other things that have not impacted the economy that are still looming, right? One thing we've heard a lot of talk about recently with the Supreme Court decision is around the student loan you know, forgiveness or lack of student loan forgiveness, which you know the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau said, I think earlier today, that like 25% of people holding student loans are gonna experience significant financial stress and have, of course, less money to spend and less to put into the economy. If there is not some a stopgap measure or some other aid, of course, the Biden administration is looking to do what they can, um, or notwithstanding the Supreme Court's decision. And then I guess the other sort of potential black swan on the horizon that we hear a lot of people talk about is the CRE and the commercial real estate market and how that we could be looking at six months or eight months from now a whole wave of problems as commercial real estate leases are not renewed. We see that as a result, another wave of defaults. And while that doesn't sound to some people that immediately how it would impact 
the average consumer, it does if that results in a further substantial contraction in the availability of credit against also continued high rates, right? Because we're going to see, I think, the market's actually right, we're going to see 25 basis points, two more meetings, 50 basis points in the offing this year, for sure. Couldn't be another 25, but I don't think so. And that doesn't mean that we're going to start getting cuts, that we're going to be enjoying low interest rates anytime soon. So do, do you not consider either of those two things to potentially also change the outlook? Well, Mark, you just listed like 10. Um, I can I can go through all of them. Uh, <laughs> on earnings. Student loans and CRE, the, <laughs> only two. Well, I mean, in earnings. But, you know, earnings, I, I, you know, fortunately, I do talk to a lot of CEOs. I, I have a few companies as Fundstruck clients. And um, so we consult for them. This is the message. You know, their business is holding up pretty well. I mean, you, you saw it, right? Q2 revenues were like 6% which is above inflation. They just don't want to be saying things are great because they don't want the Fed to suddenly hammer them with more hikes. I mean, businesses are playing a really careful game right now. And um, so they're, they're fine. And on student loans, you know what? This is the lesson. How many people told you the stock market was going to crash because once the debt ceiling was done, the TGA would get refilled and that would drain for, you know, $400 billion in a couple of weeks out of the system. Well, the TGA indeed got refilled. $400 billion was drained. That happened like in the last three weeks. The stock market was fine. Um, so I'll just say we'll, we'll have to see it when we get to that crossroads. Now, on CRE, you know, there's obviously a lot of people saying this is a doomsday scenario. But there's one group of stocks you just have to watch and you'll know what's happening. There's only one cohort that owns a lot of this paper that they cannot sell. It's insurance companies. Now, what's happened with insurance company stocks? I mean, you guys know better. They've been fine. In fact, look at some of the properties I've actually traded. It, it sounds like, and I've talked to people who've picked through this, it sounds like because of the LTVs out there, insurance companies' portfolios look money good. So you could have 30% decline in asset prices and the insurance companies aren't taking a loss. The equity, whoever funded the equity of the CRE lost money. But that could be a large family, you know, an investor class, but it's not going to be a financial crisis because it's really the credit that you have to worry about. And I again, I'll just tell you one thing, and I learned this when I was at J.P. Morgan. People tend to be linear when they look at the economy, and they think that there is – you do one thing, and you push that, and that's going to break everything. But as you know, the economy is so complex. I mean, at the end of the day, that's kind of why it's better to just you know, see what the market is doing. And the market is not – was bothered by CRE and they were bothered by student loans, but now they're getting less bothered. And it's not because the market's not ignorant. It's already realized that somehow it's whoever's taking the loss is taking the loss. And then you don't have to burden, you know, the S&P 500 with those losses. Interesting. Hey, 
Um, can we ask you a quick question? I want to bring Nick Mancini in if he has one. But you, you know, you have some. You're pretty bullish on on Bitcoin, and you're a crypto guy. What's your take on? And, and Nick charged crypto like religiously from trade to chain. What's your uh, Tom? What's your take on Bitcoin's price? You know, we're hovering around 30, 30 31. What's your you know future forecast on it? Uh, we're bullish. I mean, I was talking to Sean Farrell about it today. He's our head of digital asset strategy, and he does a lot of the fundamental work on stock to flow and, you know, price to, you know, realize value, et cetera. But, uh, the, the real driver of Bitcoin ultimately is inflows. Is there going to be a source of new capital coming in? And that's why you had to worry when, the SEC was bringing the hammer down and cutting off all these off ramps. Um, I I would say, look, there's a pretty big uh, set of inflows coming when the Bitcoin ETF gets approved. And so, I mean, I know charts really matter and and um, people watch it, but to me, the bigger fractal here is if there's an ETF coming, you need to think about how much cumulative demand that'll create. And Sean, in his latest work, estimates that for every dollar of inflow into Bitcoin, it translates into four to five dollars of enterprise value change. So, if uh, I don't know, you guys do the math. What do you think? How big will the ETF be first year for Bitcoin? Well, that is an Alex Massey question. Now, Alex is jump ready to jump in on this. Okay. Well. Then multiply that by five and then compare that to $600 billion enterprise value of Bitcoin. And then you'll, that'll get your price appreciation potential. Alex, you want to weigh in on that? No, I, I, I want Nick to weigh in on this. I hit the hot mic in case anybody uh, didn't see on Twitter. Um, me and Michael are in deep undercover investigation trying to see if uh, – uh, Sam Beckman Fried's uh, tabs are open at the bars down here still in uh, Nassau in the Bahamas, and we have been unsuccessful. Um, but I'll let uh, I'll let I, Nick handle this. Let Nick jump in. Nick, so it's an interesting point Tom's making, right? And we talked a lot about the ETF. So, you know, your thoughts and a question you might have for him on it. Well, it looks like we're waiting for Nick to get back on. Um, Tom, when you say that, is your take, I mean, we've talked a lot about the, you know, hat with BlackRock and Fidelity and these other people coming in, the tra the TradFi markets coming in, uh, the, the TradFi players coming in. You think that's hugely significant, yeah, in terms of what it's going to do for Bitcoin's price, but also perhaps for Bitcoin's, you know, adoptability. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's hard to extricate the two, right? I mean, I would say... Under the current SEC regime, um, anything that is a, looks like money has to have the same registration requirements as a traditional finance financial company, and uh, that would be true for crypto. Well, earlier this year, that would have been like, well, that's really bad news because you know traditional comp financial companies don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, the opposite's happening. the The financial system is viewing Bitcoin, I mean, Larry Fink yesterday called it digital gold. Well, that's his, I mean, talk about putting your arms around something. I mean, wouldn't you consider that a pretty big embrace? Because it's not like the financial industry is scorning gold. And um, so I, I think it's, uh, it is going to be 
it's different than what I envisioned because I would have expected a more decentralized approach to mainstream investing, but it's becoming more centralized traditional. But look, in America, there's $150 trillion of household net worth. So how much gets allocated to Bitcoin? You know, I don't know, but it could be big. Yeah, Nick, let me bring you into this. And by the way, Tom, I would say probably this may be a bit, in my head, this may be a big enough thing that it could actually outweigh the SEC's erratic behavior because you just got- Rob, if, if, if you don't mind, I want to just jump in really quickly with a question. Yeah, go. And I definitely want, want to bring Nick in. And it's a question, not only as it relates to Bitcoin um, and, and further adoption and inflows, and I totally agree with Tom in terms of what t- tends to catalyze significant- Bitcoin price moving to the upside, it's definitely asset inflows. But when we talk about the, the household uh, uh, wealth or the household net worth number that you just mentioned, which gets also thrown around a lot in terms of a bullish case for the stock market. And by the way, folks, as Tom probably knows, um, or I'm pretty sh- sure that Tom knows, I tend to be far more bullish than bearish. So I'm sort of taking certain counterpoints or challenging Tom's thesis just so we can sort of flush it out. But I do tend to agree with them overall in terms of the bullish cycle that we're in. And we've covered the statistic reasons why, statistical reasons are the trends historically on other shows. So we won't get into that. But to play the devil's advocate for a moment, when you talk about that household net worth, that's not liquid, right? That's not that's not cash that people can use to spend or to invest or to allocate. So isn't that number a little bit misleading when most of that is tied up in their primary residence? Uh well, now the time primary residence is probably, you know, twenty or thirty trillion. Uh there's businesses. There's corporate equity, there's share ownership of a business, there is investment securities. But remember, the stock market's a, a huge percentage of that. I mean, uh, what is it? It's probably 40 trillion of that total. And then bonds are probably another 30 trillion. Those are, I would consider those pretty liquid. And of course, people can act. Even if they're held large. in a pension fund? Even, even if they're held in, in, in pension funds and tax deferred uh, vehicles that you really can't pull from? Well, Mark. Do you can you tell me the number held in pension funds? Do you know the number? Not off the top of my head. <laughs> not off the it's, top of my head, though. <laughs> it's probably ten or twenty percent of that. It's not as much as you think. You have to remember, uh, there's the the reality is wealth. There's a lot of wealth in America, and it's grown a lot. I mean, you know, this number was a hundred billion um, at the end of like 2018. <laughs> You, do we really think fifty billion in pension funds? They were great stock traders. I mean, the reality is like there is a lot of money in America. That's why you're seeing these, like, hey, these venture firms raise a fifty billion dollar fund. I mean, they used to only raise, you know, two hundred million. There's a gigantic amount of money out there. So I wouldn't be. Look, you could almost have capitalism stop. Like you could shut down the economy and there's so much wealth in America that we'd still have an economy. That's actually the sad reality, right? The wealth to GDP ratio is just staggering in America. We actually could have Dutch disease. So, like you could actually get to the point where the economy is more about the re, you know, the recycling of all the income generated by all the wealth. Remember, all these corporate bonds that people own are paying them 7%, you know? I mean, there's a lot of income being generated today. 
That is so interesting. Tom, it's great talking to you. Do you have time for Nick to ask a question or you, you got to jump off? Sure. Okay, Nick. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, appreciate that very much. Um, so, you know, so to kind of pose a question and, and kind of relate it to, to BlackRock and, and wealth injection provided the right type of rails uh, and regulation goes through, um, the way that I've kind of been looking at things is, you know, obviously the initial news cycle was very bullish. I don't think anybody could deny that. And obviously the charts showed that very, very well. But when you look at the buying, most of it was U.S. based and it seems to be majority kind micro strategy based on their pub publicizing of their purchases the past few weeks. And now we've kind of stagnated a little bit. And even the news today from Fink, you know, was very bullish. You know, he's he basically the one of the most global, globally powerful CEOs is is kind of behind Bitcoin now. And it really did not have that much of an effect. So my kind of question to you, because I know you're you're typically, you know, generally a bull, bullish crypto and, and track both fundamentals and technicals very closely. Do you think we've kind of reached the tail end of the ETF approval news? And, and when I say that, obviously, we still have plenty of news to come, but the initial kind of uh, explosion of bullishness around the ETFs being filed, I kind of feel like that might be behind us in the short term as we get into the summer. And the only thing that's going to really push us higher is likely a, a physical approval or the SEC kind of relaxing their stance on choke point 2.0. So do you still kind of feel bullish heading into the summer? Or do you think that maybe a sentiment style pause is kind of on track uh, for the next few months? Oh, I mean, I don't those are they're valid questions but there's not those aren't things that i really spend time focusing on because you know to me those are either something that someone tactical like mark newton would be good to lean on or a guy like sean farrell who does make tactical calls on crypto i i wouldn't i really wouldn't have a view on that i think what you're saying is valid um but i but i don't have a view Sorry. No, no worries. It's, you know what, Tom? It's great. I actually love the way you look. Between those, it's such a great opportunity to have you on, Tom, because you have a very data-driven approach, and yet you're really also looking at the psychology of behavior, people. I'm sure like a great poker player, you bring some intuition into it, and you really kind of have, to your credit, you have been really good at seeing things that data doesn't always line up to show you. You have to add, I don't know what I'd call it, but a layer on top of the data to make that analysis meaningful. And, and you know, right or wrong, you've been right a lot. So I, I give you credit. Like your your insights are just amazing and, and appreciate you sharing them with us. All right. Thanks. Um, I can tell you I'm entering a dead zone because now I'm approaching where I'm going to be. So I might, we'll, I might get very spotty from here. We will let you go, Tom. It has been great. You are welcome back on anytime. If you have any last words you want to share, take it, and and otherwise we'll we'll let you get on your way. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just encourage everyone who's interested in our work to come visit us at fs like Frank Sam Insight i n s i g h t dot com, and uh, we've got a very friendly service for people we do daily videos um every evening and myself and mark newton and sean our digital guy does a lot of crypto um and you can see it on google reviews we got tons of happy customers i guess so have a great evening hey tom we will post that to the crow's nest everybody check out what tom's doing you, you'll get just more and more of this tom thanks for taking so much time really appreciate it yep thank you
See you guys. You guys you're listening to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter Spaces, 5.30 Eastern Time, Tuesday, Thursday, a Sunday, a weekend edition on Sunday. And and what a great conversation, Mark, having Tom on. I mean, so many insights. And I know you're being devil's advocate because you're a bull at heart. But even to your devil's advocates, he's he's got such an interesting way of looking at the markets. He's, you know, Rob, I've been around a long time. We're, Tom and I are basically the same age. Um, and, and I've had the pleasure of not only uh, sharing uh, the stage with him at different conferences and in real life conferences, by the way, um, you know, as well as at places like CNBC and, and other mainstream outlets. I've met a lot of analysts. I've met a lot of market prognosticators and talking heads. He's definitely one of the smartest. And the reason that it sounded like I was being so contrarian, or generally contrarian, as my mom used to say, is because I really wanted to take the other side of the argument so folks could understand and hear why he believes what he believes, where the conviction comes from. This is a very complicated time right now to be investing in the stock market. There are so many competing signals as evidenced by perhaps nothing better than a yield curve that has never been this inverted. And of course, there will be a quiz, people that tuned in a few weeks ago for what that means and what the yield curve is and what a yield curve being in this inverted means. Highly recessionary indicator, of course, seems to be in opposite to Tom suggesting that the S&P is going to close the year where it's going to close. Really, really interesting stuff and always a pleasure to have him on. And also I'll remind our guests that if you go to our website, getrevradio.com to our sponsor spotlight page, you'll actually be able to read quite a lot about Tom Lee and Funstrat links to their research offerings, please check it out. Support our show sponsors and affiliates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, let's talk for a minute about um, Meta and threads. I don't know where the... By, by the way, who, who let Grant Cardone up on stage? We'll bring you up in a minute. We'll, we'll, we'll bring you up in a second. We're going to... They'll, they'll, they'll let anybody in this room that doesn't understand anything. You, you know what, Grant? It's good, to, it's good to have you with us. You can join our Twitter conversation on, on Meta. Um, threads. Who I don't know where they came up with the word thread. I can't think of a worse name for for a, a, a social platform, but people are jumping on board. Five million, I guess that's not a surprise. It's getting close to John Nigerian's OnlyFans page. Just kidding, John's not here to defend himself. I don't think this is a threat to Twitter. I don't know, what do you guys think? I, I think it's different. I get it's gonna play off IG, off Instagram. Um, I, it's com competition, could, in my mind, could only be a good thing. Your thoughts? Well, I, I'm going to point something out, and then I do want to hear from Nick. I would love to hear you know, Grant's thoughts on this. Grant has become a prolific user and host on Twitter Spaces, just like we are. Um, I, the growth, the, the massive rapid user growth, comes from the fact that you can automatically, as I do today, open a Threads account and port over all of your followers immediately. So they've got a little bit of an advantage, really. This is just an extension of Instagram at the end of the day, right? Um very interesting other piece of news, and then I, I will open it up because I do want to hear our other speakers on stage thoughts on this. Apparently, Elon, one of his legal eagle bulldogs, sent a rather scathing letter over to his potential cage match rival, Mark Zuckerberg, alleging essentially that everything that he had done in conjunction with the creation of threads was essentially an imitation of, of Twitter and possibly even Twitter spaces. 
and that uh, it was potentially a, a violative and actionable under the law. So shots fired, not surprising, shots fired from Elon. Um, but look, there's been a lot of complaints about usability of Twitter and, and restrictions on what people can see and you know, paying for more views and Twitter spaces being spotty and all that. We're big Twitter fans, but we're obviously aware of what some of the complaints are. So I don't know. We, we, could, be on threads. Is a- we could be on threads, Mark. Well, we could be. Yeah, on- there you go. <laughs> Great. Yeah, Do- well, yeah, well, uh, you know, it just shows me that Zuck uh, is a, uh, is a, uh, he's willing to steal everything. You know, he's created nothing new. Now it makes me think he so- stole Facebook from the Winkle brothers, even though he won in court. He already gave up on his spaces or audio version of this. Couldn't make that work. Um, I know everybody's hot and heavy about it right now. I mean, I picked up 138,000 followers in 48 hours, uh, but I don't think the people will stay there on it. Uh, I think that the, the people there right now, oh, I love it because it's so positive here. People do not stay for positivity. They fucking love drama. Um, they, they like controversy. That's why news and media works because uh, they're always showing you the bloody, the bloody uglies of society, you know? So, um, yeah, I don't really respect Mark for doing this. I hope Elon sues his pants off and wins. You know, he, he, it's a copy. It's a copycat. But is that, if you, if you, that boom, Grant? I mean, if we're honest, I, I mean, is, is I, I, that part I, of the I, nature of this? Like, we're we're building no, broad- no. I think no. I think. Look, at TikTok came around and, and created something brand new and just grabbed market, and then Instagram try, had to copy that. I think companies that copy end up dying, and company uh, companies that in, this is an innovation. This is a copy in my mind, right? So. Um, I want to see innovation from people, not just another identical, um, you know, product. I want to see innovation. I want to see improvements on stuff. So is it terrible what he did? I don't know. I don't want my shit copied. No, that's an interesting take. It is. I, you know, and you're right. Mark Zuckerberg does. He figures out how to monetize off whatever's going on that's working. Um, and and. In my head, I do think this is the future of broadcasting, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Threads, that this is going to be the new broadcast platform for content. What, what, what we know for sure about Mark is he will not allow any of the creators. He will not acknowledge the creators. You will not be rewarded there. Uh, I, 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 I worked my ass off at Facebook to get 6 million followers, and the moment I got them— uh, I had to pay to get my message to them. Now, I know it's on his platform. I understand that. Nobody needs to tell me that here. But I created and built that audience by delivering content every day. And had they had, had I just been able to naturally, organically get my message to those six million, I would have spent money to add another six million. But I don't want to pay to deliver to the people that, that, that I already built uh, some kind of relationship with. And so I don't like that. I, I don't. I don't like being hostage. And I. And I think the last thing I'll say is I believe. I truly believe that Elon will reward creators here. 
I completely agree with Grant. I mean, if we look at what Elon's doing, they just got a money transmitter license. They want to introduce creator royalties. They want to do more things to empower creators to create so that they can earn and obviously drive value for their audience. When you look at what Zuck's done, he's not only created a copycat, but it's a copycat light. There's no there's no spaces. There's no long form video content. There's no DMs. There, there's not even hashtags. So, you know, if you're talking about reaching your audience, yeah, you got your Instagram audience. But if we think about cold and community facebook is where everybody's grandma goes to post memes that are from 2005 instagram is for thirst traps and hyper selling and twitter is really just a, a conglomerate of you know like grant said drama cesspool inspiration um but just general conversation where you can uh, generally genuinely be yourself uh and that's not really anywhere else on any other social platform so to release not only a copycat but a copycat without the features that makes Twitter what it is or the promise of future features that are that take away from other platforms like YouTube or Twitch or whatever. Um, I, I think it's it's disingenuous. And if you just look at basic leadership, look at Zuckerberg's to, uh, threads versus Elon's tweets. I'm going to follow the person who's entertaining me, who's who's with me, who doesn't feel like they're on the other side of the aisle from me. And I think that's, you know, the best way to say it. That's great. You well, know. go ahead, Mike. Nick. Why does he have to bring the grandmas into this, man? Come on. That was, that was a little Hey, ball. come on. You're young. No, it's just age appropriate here. The, the, My grandma would be the first to admit it. But listen, joking aside, what you just said is something that I, I want to touch on and would love to get, you know, Grant's thought on. And this is not a political show, but that doesn't mean that we don't address the possibility of where politics play roles in financial decisions. And don't isn't some of this, though, guys, about or pointing this to Grant, isn't some of this about two people that are trying to you know take control over the world, two of the world's largest social media platforms who could probably not be at further opposite ends of the political spectrum? Yeah, uh, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know that Mark is actually that left as we we think he is. I know some people that have had encounters with him that said, "Oh, yeah, he's got an American flag in the song." It's it might not be. We might not be presented. But I do know this: for a guy to go out and spend forty-four billion dollars on Twitter, like forty-four billion, you know, to make that kind of commitment, everybody on Twitter should should one hundred percent raise their hand to be, you know, to support him in having his his product protected from being completely copied. I think it's an interesting I point. Just, That's a really interesting point, Grant. And and by the way, I'm just gonna leave it with the fact that he called it threads, which is horrible. Hey, let me bring Michael um let me let me bring Michael Williams in. He's up on stage with us. Michael, you may have some thoughts on on this, particularly what Grant's saying about, you know, basically this is copycat. It's it's just stealing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's been Facebook's sort of MO, right? They use their their incredible platform and engineering capabilities and bring economies of scale to any platform that they build. I mean, when Messenger first inter was introduced, it was AOL Instant Messenger. You know, you had uh, Marketplace for Craigslist or Stories for Snapchat or Reels for TikTok. So this is sort of their playbook of, hey, let's take the best capabilities that other companies offer and integrate them into our platform and bring um, synergies to the user experience to allow our users to seamlessly interact with these products and try to integrate them the together to deliver a better user experience. And I think this just follows in line with that sort of same MO. Um, you know, 
Facebook's all about gathering data and they really didn't have a good data platform for what I would consider to be contemporaneous thoughts or, or, or debate. Um, you know, I think you learn the most about someone based on how they debate, you know, everyone can sit there in a room and, and agree, but when you start, you know, bringing uh, diverse opinions into somewhere, you actually, someone will show their true colors. Um, but my, my thought, quite frankly, is people are saying, oh, is this going to kill Twitter? And I, I don't think so, because right now, from what I'm seeing is there's too much moderation. I remember, um, you know, I made a facetious remark on a on a Facebook post about some guys doing bad stuff. And I said, all men are assholes. And I, I got like a six month warning for using the word asshole and men in the same sentence. And, um, you know, I thought that was a little overzealous to say the least. And from what I've seen screenshots being posted on, on Twitter right now, it sounds like everyone's being filtered. So I, I don't actually think this is a real challenge to the, the town hall sort of algorithm that, um, you know, Elon has put out. And I, I, unless they really cut back on some of the moderation, but one other thing I'll say, and then I have a bunch of other comments, but I, I'm sure there's going to be some rebuttals on this they don't need to make an intrinsic profit on this, right? So they are going to be able, in my opinion, to offer a superior user experience. Um, you know, they're going to be able to provide better functionality. They might even be able to provide better monetization because the data, regardless if they show ads on this platform, the data that they're getting, that contemporaneous thought, the additional information feeds, it's a multiplier for them. You know, it, 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 they can they can monetize this data far better than Twitter can monetize their data. Twitter's advert platform is deplorable right now. As someone who's tried to run advertisements on Twitter, it, it's impossible to use. I mean, you know, you say show stuff in the United States and you're getting, you know, Sri Lanka is your number one viewership. So it just, it doesn't work right now. And that's why I think Elon's really had to start to capitalize on API, uh, you know, raising money through the APIs or premium subscriptions. So it'll be really, it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. But right now, based on the content moderation policy alone, I do not think this is a challenge whatsoever to Twitter um, from that standpoint. Well, it doesn't Twitter have to ultimately, uh, Twitter does need to make some adjustments and it's growing. And, it, and look, I'm convinced, like I said, I think these kinds of social platforms become the new broadcast platforms, the next wave. So in some ways, I would argue maybe this just incentivizes Twitter to move even faster. I mean, to, to just fix things that are to enhance the user experience. I completely agree. The, the one note I want to make about monetization, because I do agree with what Michael said about the ability to monetize threads, because as we've seen with Twitter, the one thing that Twitter lacks is a robust ad uh, platform. And obviously the ads we see aren't the best. But uh, how long ago did Meta buy WhatsApp? And how long has it taken them to monetize it? And the trick answer to that is they haven't. And it's basically a, a, a WeChat clone um, where the people should be sending money and, and driving commerce through. And Meta has been spending billions on the metaverse doing that. So to kind of, you know, back to my original point, to scrape together a light copycat of Twitter and then say that it's, you know, going to be Twitter when you can't even monetize probably the biggest app that you actually own globally, which is WhatsApp. Definitely a little fearful for meta investors, at least in the short term, kind of stacking all this together. Mark, I'm not I, I, so, to, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Grant. Oh, no, I was just going to say, so so you're right. They didn't directly monetize WhatsApp, but they do take all that metadata and integrate it into their services. So the fact that WhatsApp has a list of your contacts and very clearly that data is, they tell you it's not encrypted. They're integrating this to build this this 
essentially like almost godlike graph of your interactions, who you talk to, the numbers, the area codes that you interact with. I mean, this this threads is going to be doing the same exact thing. They don't need to directly monetize the platform itself. The data that they will gain from this threads platform, if it takes off, is is going to monetize all the other platforms that they already serve ads on because they're getting a more cohesive picture. That is, Michael, that is a really interesting take on the data. Mark, I mean, look, we talk a lot about data. We know Facebook is all about getting data. I'm a big believer that eventually Web3, as we move towards that a little more, the technologies of that allow people to own their data or at least force Facebook to pay for it. But Michael's point's a good one, right? I mean, they're, they're, they, this is all about making money off our data. Well, uh, Michael's spot on, right? And anybody that knows me or that comes on the show and all knows that, you know, I'm a data, I'm a data nerd. I'm a data OG. Um, started Battleton, you know, 11, 11 years ago and counting now. Um, so we've been looking at understanding and, and figuring out how to monetize unique data sets and also trying to figure out how to, how to help people protect their personal, their consumer data and how to actually enable and empower them to uh, have a piece of that pie when that data gets monetized and when they opt in. So I, I agree with that completely. But I guess if it's a longer-term strategy and it's an indirect monetization strategy when it comes to threads, Michael is asking or answering a question that was posed to me quite a lot today on, on other shows uh, that I do in, in mainstream. What does this mean for, for Meta's stock price, right? And of course, I think, and as I said, I think it would have done even better than it did today had we not had the sell-off that was fueled by the ADP blowout jobs report. But I think it's going to be, for the reasons that Michael said, I think it's going to be a bit of a flash in the pan because I think the other problems that Meta is facing, which have been very well covered in the media throughout the course of the past you know, year plus, um, are going to continue to plague this company. And while that longer-term monetization strategy will ultimately pay off in some fashion, I don't think it's going to help the stock go much higher than where it currently is. Interesting take. You're listening to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter Spaces. Follow us at GetRev Radio. We do this every Tuesday, every Thursday, and every Sunday at 5.30 Eastern Time. Follow all of our great speakers and guests. Thanks for joining Rob Nelson, Alex Massioli, Mark Lepresti, and John Nigerian with another great episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain twice a week on Revolution Radio. Whether you're new to the world of Web3 finance or an experienced investor, we've got you covered. Follow us on Twitter at GetRevRadio and visit our website at revolutionradio.io, helping you make smarter financial decisions. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.